Part 13 of The Naval War of 1812 by Theodore Roosevelt This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 13 Nothing remained to be done, and at 6.20 the Essex surrendered and was taken possession of. The Phoebe had lost four men killed, including her first lieutenant, William Ingram, and seven wounded. The Cherub, one killed, and three, including Captain Tucker, wounded total five killed and ten wounded footnote james says that most of the loss was occasioned by the first three broadsides of the essex this is not surprising as in all she hardly fired half a dozen and the last was discharged when half of the guns had been disabled and there were scarcely men enough to man the remainder most of the time her resistance was limited to firing such of her six long guns as would bear End of footnote. the difference in loss was natural as owing to their having long guns and the choice of position the british had been able to fire ten shot to the americans one the conduct of the two english captains in attacking porter as soon as he was disabled in neutral waters while they had been very careful to abstain from breaking the neutrality while he was in good condition, does not look well. At the best it shows that Hilliar had only been withheld hitherto from the attack by timidity, and it looks all the worse when it is remembered that Hilliar owed his ship's previous escape entirely to Porter's forbearance on a former occasion when the British frigate was entirely at his mercy and that the British captain had afterward expressly said that he would not break the neutrality. Still, the British in this war did not act very differently from the way we ourselves did on one or two occasions in the Civil War, witness the capture of the Florida. And after the battle was once begun, the sneers which most of our historians, as well as the participators in the fight, have showered upon the British captains, for not foregoing the advantages which their entire masts and better artillery gave them by coming to close quarters, are decidedly foolish. Hilliard's conduct during the battle, as well as his treatment of the prisoners afterward, was perfect, and as a minor matter it may be mentioned that his official letter is singularly just and fair-minded. Says Lord Howard Douglas, footnote, Naval Gunnery, page 149 end of footnote the action displayed all that can reflect honor on the science and admirable conduct of captain hilliar and his crew which without the assistance of the cherub would have ensured the same termination captain porter's sneers at the respectful distance the phoebe kept are in fact acknowledgments of the ability with which captain hilliar availed himself of the superiority of his arms it was a brilliant affair while endorsing this criticism it may be worth while to compare it with some of the author's comments upon the other actions as that between decatur and the macedonian to make the odds here as great against garden as they were against porter it would be necessary to suppose that the macedonian had lost her main topmast had but six long eighteens to oppose to her antagonists twenty-fours 
and that the latter was assisted by the corvette Adams, so that as a matter of fact Porter fought at fully double or treble the disadvantage Garden did, and instead of surrendering when he had lost the third of his crew, fought till three-fifths of his men were dead or wounded, and moreover inflicted greater loss and damage on his antagonists than Garden did. If then, as Lord Douglas says, the defense of the Macedonian brilliantly upheld the character of the British Navy for courage, how much more did that of the Essex show for the American Navy? And if Hilliard's conduct was brilliant, that of Decatur was more so. This was an action in which it is difficult to tell exactly how to award praise. Captain Hilliard deserves it for the coolness and skill with which he made his approaches and took his positions, so as to destroy his adversary with least loss to himself, and also for the precision of his fire. The cherub's behavior was more remarkable for extreme caution than for anything else. As regards the mere fight, Porter certainly did everything a man could do to contend successfully with the overwhelming force opposed to him and the few guns that were available were served with the utmost precision. As an exhibition of dogged courage it has never been surpassed since the time when the Dutch captain Claesoon, after fighting two long days, blew up his disabled ship, devoting himself and all his crew to death rather than surrender to the hereditary foes of his race, and was bitterly avenged afterward by the grim sea-beggars of Holland. The days when Drake singed the beard of the Catholic king, and the small English craft were the dread and scourge of the great floating castles of Spain. Any man reading Farragut's account is forcibly reminded of some of the deeds of daring do in that the heroic age of the Teutonic navies. Captain Hilliar, in his letter, says the defense of the Essex, taking into consideration our superiority of force, and the very discouraging circumstances of her having lost her main top mast and being twice on fire did honor to her brave defenders and most fully evinced the courage of captain porter and those under his command her colors were not struck until the loss in killed and wounded was so awfully great and her shattered condition so seriously bad as to render all further resistance unavailing footnote james page four nineteen says the essex as far as is borne out by proof the only safe way where an american is concerned had twenty-four killed and forty-five wounded but captain porter thinking by exaggeration his loss to prop up his fame talks of fifty-six killed and mortally wounded, thirty-nine severely, twenty-seven slightly, etc., etc. This would be no more worthy of notice than any other of his falsifications, were it not followed by various British writers. Hilliard states that he has 161 prisoners, has found twenty-three dead, that three wounded were taken off, between twenty and thirty reached the shore, and that the remainder were either killed or wounded. 
it is by wilfully preserving the silence about this last sentence that james makes out his case it will be observed that hilliar enumerates one sixty one plus twenty three plus three plus twenty five say or two hundred twelve and says the remainder were either killed or wounded porter having two hundred fifty five men at first this remainder was forty three Hilliar stating that of his 161 prisoners, 42 were wounded. His account thus gives the Americans 111 killed and wounded. James's silence about Hilliar's last sentence enables him to make the loss but 69. And his willful omission is quite on a par with the other meannesses and falsehoods which utterly destroy the reliability of his work by hillier's own letter it is thus seen that porter's loss in killed and wounded was certainly one hundred eleven perhaps one hundred sixteen or if porter had as james says two hundred sixty five men one hundred and twenty six there still remain some discrepancies between the official accounts which can be compared in tabular form hillier prisoners unwounded one hundred nineteen prisoners wounded forty two taken away wounded three those who reached shore twenty five remainder killed or wounded forty three killed twenty three for a total of two hundred fifty five porter seventy five prisoners unwounded twenty seven prisoners slightly wounded thirty nine prisoners severely wounded fifty eight killed thirty one missing twenty five reached shore total two hundred fifty five the explanation probably is that hilliar's forty two wounded do not include porter's twenty seven slightly wounded and that his one hundred and sixty one prisoners include porter's twenty five who reached shore and his twenty five who reached shore comes under porter's thirty one missing this would make the accounts nearly tally at any rate in porter's book are to be found the names of all his killed wounded and missing and their relatives received pensions from the american government which if the returns were false would certainly have been a most elaborate piece of deception it is far more likely that hilliar was mistaken or he may have counted in the essex juniors crew which would entirely account for the discrepancies in any event it must be remembered that he makes the american killed and wounded one hundred eleven porter one hundred twenty four and not sixty nine as james says the latter's statement is willfully false as he had seen hilliard's letter End of footnote. he also bears very candid testimony to the defence of the essex having been effective enough to at one time render the result doubtful saying our first attack produced no visible effect our second was not more successful and having lost the use of our mainsail jib and mainstay appearances looked a little inauspicious throughout the war no ship was so desperately defended as the essex taking into account the frightful odds against which she fought which always enhances the merit of a defence the lawrence which suffered even more was backed by a fleet the frolic was overcome by an equal foe and the reindeer 
fought at far less of a disadvantage, and suffered less. None of the frigates, British or American, were defended with anything like the resolution she displayed. But it is perhaps permissible to inquire whether Porter's course, after the accident to his topmast occurred, was altogether the best that could have been taken. On such a question no opinion could have been better than Farragut's, although, of course, his judgment was ex post facto, as he was very young at the time of the fight. In the first place, I consider, our original and greatest error was in attempting to regain the anchorage. Being greatly superior in sailing powers, we should have borne up and run before the wind. If we had come in contact with the Phoebe, we should have carried her by boarding. If she avoided us, as she might have done, by her greater ability to manoeuvre, then we should have taken her fire and passed on, leaving both vessels behind until we had replaced our topmast, by which time they would have been separated, as unless they did so it would have been no chase, the cherub being a dull sailor. Secondly, when it was apparent to everybody that we had no chance of success under the circumstances, the ship should have been run ashore, throwing her broadside to the beach to prevent raking, and fought as long as was consistent with humanity, and then set on fire. But having determined upon anchoring, we should have bent a spring on to the ring of the anchor instead of the, to the cable, where it was exposed, and could be shot away as fast as put on. But it must be remembered that when Porter decided to anchor near shore in neutral water, he could not anticipate Hilliard's deliberate and treacherous breach of faith. I do not allude to the mere disregard of neutrality. Whatever international moralists may say, such disregard is a mere question of expediency. If the benefits to be gained by attacking a hostile ship in neutral waters are such as to counterbalance the risk of incurring the enmity of the neutral power, why then the attack ought to be made? Had Hilliar, when he first made his appearance off Valparaiso, sailed in with his two ships, the men at quarters and guns out, and at once attacked Porter, considering the destruction of the Essex as outweighing the insult to Chile, why his behavior would have been perfectly justifiable. In fact, this is unquestionably what he intended to do. But he suddenly found himself in such a position that in the event of hostilities his ship would be the captured one, and he owed his escape purely to Porter's over-forbearance under great provocation. Then he gave his word to Porter that he would not infringe on the neutrality, and he never dared to break it until he saw Porter was disabled and almost helpless. This may seem strong language to use about a British officer, but it is justly strong, exactly as any outsider must consider Warrington's attack on the British brig Nautilus in 1815 as a piece of needless cruelty. So any outsider must consider Hilliard as having most treacherously broken faith with Porter. After the fight, Hilliard behaved most kindly and courteously to the prisoners, 
and as already said he fought his ship most ably for it would have been quixotic to a degree to forego his advantages but previous to the battle his conduct had been over-cautious it was to be expected that the essex would make her escape as soon as practicable and so he should have used every effort to bring her to action instead of this he always declined the fight when alone and he owed his ultimate success to the fact that the essex instead of escaping as she could several times have done stayed hoping to bring the phoebe to action single-handed it must be remembered that the essex was almost as weak compared to the phoebe as the cherub was compared to the essex the latter was just about midway between the british ships as may be seen by the following comparison in the action the essex fought all six of her long twelves and the cherub both her long nines instead of the corresponding broadside carronades which the ships regularly used this gives the essex a better armament than she would have had fighting her guns as they were regularly used but it can be seen how great the inequality still was it must also be kept in mind that while the battles between the american forty fours and british thirty eights the short weight twenty four pounders of the former had in reality no greater range or accuracy than the full weight eighteens of their opponents in this case the phoebe's full weight eighteens had the much greater range and accuracy than the short weight twelves of the essex comparative force the phoebe three hundred and twenty men broadside guns thirteen long eighteens with a weight of two hundred and thirty four pounds one long twelve with a weight of twelve pounds and one long nine with a weight of nine pounds for a total long gun weight of two hundred and fifty five pounds seven short thirty twos for a total weight of two hundred twenty four pounds and one short eighteen total weight eighteen pounds for a total short gun weight of two hundred and forty two pounds the totals were twenty three guns and four hundred and ninety seven pounds the cherub had one hundred and eighty men broadside guns two long nines for a total of eighteen pounds and a total of eighteen pounds of long gun weight two short eighteens for a total of thirty six pounds nine short thirty twos for a total of two hundred and eighty eight pounds and a total short gun weight of three hundred twenty four pounds total of thirteen guns and three hundred and forty two pounds the total british force five hundred men thirty six guns eight hundred and thirty nine pounds of metal two hundred and seventy three long and five hundred and sixty six short the essex had two hundred and fifty five men six long twelves for a total of sixty six pounds of long gun weight and seventeen short thirty twos for a total of five hundred and four pounds of short gun weight taking seven per cent off for short weight and the totals for the essex two hundred and fifty five men twenty three guns and five hundred and seventy pounds of metal all accounts agree as to the armament of the essex i have taken that of the phoebe and cherub from james but 
Captain Porter's official letter and all the other American accounts make the Phoebe's broadside fifteen long eighteens and eight short thirty-twos, and give the Cherubinol eighteen short thirty-twos, eight short twenty-fours, and two long nines. This would make their broadside nine hundred and four pounds, two hundred eighty-eight long, six hundred and sixteen short. I would have no doubt that the American accounts were right if the question rested solely on James's veracity, but he probably took his figures from official sources. At any rate, remembering the difference between long guns and carronades, it appears that the Essex was really nearly intermediate in force between the Phoebe and the Cherub, the battle being fought with a very trifling exception at long range it was in reality conflict between a crippled ship throwing a broadside of sixty-six pounds of metal and two ships throwing two hundred and seventy-three pounds who by their ability to manoeuvre could choose positions where they could act with full effect while their antagonist could not return a shot contemporary history does not afford a single instance of so determined a defence against such frightful odds the official letters of captains hilliar and porter agree substantially in all respects the details of the fight as seen in the essex are found in the life of farragut but although the british captain does full justice to his foe british historians have universally tried to belittle porter's conduct it is much to be regretted that we have no british account worth paying attention to of the proceedings before the fight when the phoebe declined a single combat with the essex james of course states that the phoebe did not decline it but he gives no authority and his unsupported assertion would be valueless even if uncontradicted his account of the action is grossly inaccurate, as he has inexcusably garbled Hilliard's report. One instance of this I have already mentioned, as regards Hilliard's account of Porter's loss. Again, Hilliard distinctly states that the Essex was twice on fire, yet James, page 418, utterly denies this, thereby impliedly accusing the British captain of falsehood there is really no need of the corroboration of porter's letter but he has it most fully in the life of farragut page thirty seven the men came rushing up from below many with their clothes burning which were torn from them as quickly as possible and those for whom this could not be done were told to jump overboard and to quench the flames one man swam to shore with scarcely a square inch of his body which had not been burned, and although he was deranged for some days, he ultimately recovered and afterwards served with me in the West Indies. The third unfounded statement in James's account is that buckets of spirits were found in all parts of the main deck of the Essex, and that most of the prisoners were drunk. No authority is cited for this, and there is not a shadow of truth in it he ends by stating that few even in his own country will venture to speak well of captain david porter after these various paragraphs we are certainly justified in rejecting james's account in toto an occasional mistake is perfectly excusable 
and gross ignorance of a good many facts does not invalidate a man's testimony with regard to some others with which he is acquainted but a wilful and systematic perversion of the truth in a number of cases throws a very strong doubt on a historian's remaining statements unless they are supported by unquestionable authority but if british historians have generally given porter much less than his due by omitting all reference to the inferiority of his guns his lost topmast etc it is no worse than americans have done in similar cases the latter for example will make great allowances in the case of the essex for her having carronades only but utterly fail to allude to the cayenne and levant as having suffered under the same disadvantage they should remember that the rules cut both ways the essex having suffered chiefly above the water-line she was repaired sufficiently in valparaiso to enable her to make the voyage to england where she was added to the british navy the essex junior was disarmed and the american prisoners embarked in her for new york on parole but lieutenant mcknight chaplain adams midshipman lyman and eleven seamen were exchanged on the spot for some of the british prisoners on board the essex junior mcknight and lyman accompanied the phoebe to rio de janeiro where they embarked on a swedish vessel were taken out of her by the wasp captain blakely and were lost with the rest of the crew of that vessel the others reached new york in safety of the prizes made by the essex some were burnt or sunk by the americans and some retaken by the british and so after nearly two years uninterrupted success the career of the essex terminated amid disasters of all kinds but at least her officers and crew could reflect that they had afforded an example of courage in adversity that it would be difficult to match elsewhere the first of the new heavy sloops of war that got to sea was the frolic master commandant joseph bainbridge which put out early in february shortly afterward she encountered a large carthaginian privateer which refused to surrender and was sunk by a broadside nearly a hundred of a crew being drowned before daylight on the twentieth of april latitude twenty four degrees twelve minutes north longitude eighty one degrees twenty five minutes west she fell in with the british thirty-six gun frigate orpheus captain pigott and the twelve gun schooner shelburne lieutenant hope both to leeward the schooner soon weathered the frolic but of course was afraid to close and the american sloop continued beating to windward in the effort to escape for nearly thirteen hours the water was started the anchors cut away and finally the guns thrown overboard a measure by means of which both the hornet the rattlesnake and the adam succeeded in escaping under similar circumstances but all was of no avail and she was finally captured the court of inquiry honorably acquitted both officers and crew as was to be expected james considers the surrender a disgraceful one because the guns were thrown overboard 
as i have said this was a measure which had proved successful in several cases of a like nature the criticism is a piece of petty meanness fortunately we have admiral codrington's dictum on the surrender memoirs volume one page three hundred ten which he evidently considered as perfectly honourable a sister ship to the frolic the peacock captain lewis warrington sailed from new york on march twelfth and cruised southward on the twenty eighth of april at seven in the morning latitude seventeen degrees forty seven minutes north longitude eighty degrees seven minutes west several sail were made to windward footnote official letter of captain warrington april twenty ninth eighteen fourteen end of footnote these were a small convoy of merchant men bound for the bermudas under the protection of the eighteen-gun brig sloop epervier captain wales five days out of havana and with one hundred and eighteen thousand dollars in specie aboard footnote james volume six page four hundred twenty four end of footnote the epervier when discovered was steering north by east the wind being from the eastward soon afterward the wind veered gradually round to the southward and the epervier hauled up close on the port tack while the convoy made all sail away and the peacock came down with the wind on her starboard quarter at ten a m the vessels were within gunshot and the peacock edged away to get in a raking broadside but the epervier frustrated this by putting her helm up until close on her adversary's bow when she rounded to and fired her starboard guns receiving in return the starboard broadside of the peacock at ten twenty a m these first broadsides took effect aloft the brig being partially dismantled while the peacock's foreyard was totally disabled by two round shot in the starboard quarter which deprived the ship of the use of her foresail and fore topsail and compelled her to run large however the epervier eased away footnote according to some accounts she at this time tacked and footnote when abaft her foe's beam and ran off alongside of her using her port guns while the american still had the starboard battery engaged at ten thirty five the peacock's fire was now very hot and directed chiefly at her adversary's hull on which it told heavily while she did not suffer at all in return the epervier coming up into the wind owing somewhat to the loss of headsail captain wales called his crew aft to try boarding but they refused saying she's too heavy for us footnote james naval occurrences page two hundred forty three end of footnote and then at eleven o five the colors were hauled down except the injury to her foreyard the peacock's damages were confined to the loss of a few topmast and top-gallant backstays and some shot-holes through her sails of her crew consisting all told one hundred sixty six men and boys footnote niles register volume six page one ninety six says only one hundred and sixty 
The above is taken from Warrington's letter of June 1st, preserved with the other manuscript letters in the naval archives. The crew contained about ten boys, was not composed of picked men, and did not number 185. See James, end of footnote. Only two were wounded, both slightly. The Epervier, on the other hand, had forty-five shot holes in her hull, five feet of water in her hold, main topmast over the side, main mast nearly in two, main boom shot away, bowsprit wounded severely, and most of the fore-rigging and stays shot away, and of a crew of one hundred and twenty-eight men, according to the list of prisoners given by Captain Warrington, James says 118, but he is not backed up by any official report. Nine were killed and mortally wounded, and fourteen severely and slightly wounded. Instead of two long sixes for bow-chasers and a shifting carronade, she had two eighteen-pound carronades, according to the American prize list. Footnote American State Papers, volume 14, page 427, end of footnote. Captain Warrington says thirty-twos. Otherwise she was armed as usual. She was, like the rest of her kind, very tubby, being as broad as the peacock, though ten feet shorter on deck. Allowing as usual seven percent for short weight of the American shot, we get the comparative force. Comparative force. The Peacock, 509 tons, number of broadside guns, 11, weight of metal, 315 pounds, crew, 166, loss of 2. The Epervier, 477 tons, 9, number of broadside guns, weight of metal, 274 pounds, crew of 128, loss, 23. This is the relative force being as 12 is to 10. The relative execution done was as 12 is to 1, and the Epervier surrendered before she had lost a fifth of her crew. The case of the Epervier closely resembles that of the Argus. In both cases, the officers behaved finely. In both cases, too, the victorious foe was heavier in about the same proportion while neither the crew of the Argus nor the crew of the Epervier fought with the determined bravery displayed by the combatants in almost every other struggle of the war. But it must be added that the Epervier did worse than the Argus and the Peacock American, better than the Pelican. The gunnery of the Epervier was extraordinarily poor. The most disgraceful part of the affair was that our ship was cut to pieces and the enemy hardly scratched. Footnote. Memoirs of Admiral Codrington, volume 1, page 322, end of footnote. James states that after the first two or three broadsides, several cannonades became unshipped, and that the others were dismounted by the fire of the peacock, that the men had not been exercised at the guns, and most important of all, that the crew, which contained several foreigners, but was chiefly British, as the Argus was chiefly American, was disgracefully bad. 
the peacock on the contrary showed skilful seamanship as well as excellent gunnery in forty-five minutes after the fight was over the foreyard had been sent down and fished the foresail set up and everything in complete order again footnote letter of captain warrington april twenty ninth eighteen fourteen and a footnote the prize was got in sailing order by dark though great exertions had to be made to prevent her sinking mr nicholson first of the peacock was put in charge as prize master the next day the two vessels were abreast of amelia island when two frigates were discovered in the north to leeward captain warrington at once directed the prize to proceed to st mary's while he separated and made sail on a wind to the south intending to draw the frigates after him as he was confident that the peacock a very fast vessel could outsail them footnote letter of captain warrington may fourth eighteen fourteen end of footnote the plan succeeded perfectly the brig reaching savannah on the first of may and the ship three days afterwards the epervier was purchased for the u s navy under the same name and rate the peacock sailed again on june fourth footnote letter of captain warrington october thirtieth eighteen fourteen end of footnote going first northward to the grand banks then to the azores then she stationed herself in the mouth of the irish channel and afterward cruised off cork the mouth of the shannon and the north of ireland capturing several very valuable prizes and creating great consternation she then changed her station to elude the numerous vessels that had been sent after her and sailed southward off cape ortegal cape finisterre and finally among the barbados reaching new york on october twenty ninth during this cruise she encountered no war vessel smaller than a frigate but captured fourteen sail of merchantmen some containing valuable cargoes and manned by one hundred forty eight men on april twenty ninth h m s schooner balahoo six lieutenant king while cruising off the american coast was captured by the perry privateer a much heavier vessel after an action of ten minutes duration the general peace prevailing in europe allowed the british to turn their energies altogether to america and in no place was this increased vigor so much felt as in chesapeake bay where a great number of line-of-battle ships frigates sloops and transports had assembled in preparation for the assault on washington and baltimore the defense of these waters was confided to captain joshua barney footnote he was born in baltimore july seventh seventeen fifty nine james with habitual accuracy calls him an irishman he makes decatur by the way commit the geographical solecism of being born in maryland virginia and a footnote with a flotilla of gunboats these consisted of three or four sloops and schooners but mainly of barges which were often smaller than the ships boats that were sent against them these gunboats were manned by from twenty to forty men each and each carried according to its size one or two long twenty-four eighteen or twelve pounders 
they were bad craft at best, and in addition it is difficult to believe that they were handled to the fullest advantage. On June 1st, Commodore Barney, with the block sloop Scorpion and fourteen smaller gunboats, chiefly row galleys, passed the mouth of the Patuxent and chased the British schooner St. Lawrence and seven boats under Captain Barry, until they took refuge with the Dragon 74, which in turn chased Barney's flotilla into the Patuxent, where she blockaded it in company with the Albion 74. They were afterward joined by the Loire 36, Narcissus 32, and La Sua 18, and Commodore Barney moved two miles up St. Leonard's Creek, while the frigates and sloop blockaded its mouth. A deadlock now ensued. The gunboats were afraid to attack the ships, and the ships' boats were just as afraid of the gunboats. On the 8th, 9th, and 11th, skirmishes occurred. On each occasion, the British boats came up till they caught sight of Barney's flotilla, and were promptly chased off by the latter, which, however, took great care not to meddle with the larger vessels. Finally, Colonel Wadsworth of the artillery, with two long eighteen-pounders, assisted by the marines under Captain Miller and a few regulars, offered to cooperate from the shore, while Barney assailed the two frigates with the flotilla. On the 26th, the joint attack took place most successfully. The Loire and Narcissus were driven off, although not much damaged, and the flotilla rode out in triumph, with a loss of but four killed and seven wounded. But in spite of this small success, which was mainly due to Colonel Wadsworth, Commodore Barney made no more attempts with his gunboats. The bravery and skill which the flotilla men showed at Bladensburg proved conclusively that their ill success on the water was due to the craft they were in and not to any failing of the men. At the same period the French gunboats were even more unsuccessful, but the Danes certainly did very well with theirs. Barney's flotilla in the Patunxent remained quiet until August 22nd and then was burned when the British advanced on Washington. The history of this advance as well as of the unsuccessful one on Baltimore concerns less the American than the British Navy and will be but briefly alluded to here. On August 20th Major General Ross and Rear Admiral Cockburn with about 5,000 soldiers and marines moved on Washington by land, while a squadron composed of the Seahorse 38, Euryalus 36, Bombs, Devastation, Etna and Meteor, and rocket ship Erebus under Captain James Alexander Gordon moved up the Potomac to attack Fort Washington near Alexandria, and Sir Peter Parker in the Menelaus 38 was sent to create a diversion above Baltimore. Sir Peter's diversion turned out most unfortunately for him, for having landed to attack 120 Maryland militia under Colonel Reed, he lost his own life, while fifty of his followers were placed hors de combat 
and the remainder chased back to the ship by the victors, who had but three wounded. The American army, which was to oppose Ross and Cockburn, consisted of some seven thousand militia, who fled so quickly that only about fifteen hundred British had time to become engaged. The fight was really between these one thousand five hundred British regulars and the American flotilla men. These consisted of seventy-eight marines under Captain Miller and three hundred and seventy sailors, some of whom served under Captain Barney, who had a battery of two eighteens and three twelves, while the others were armed with muskets and pikes and acted with the marines. Both sailors and marines did nobly, inflicting most of the loss the British suffered, which amounted to two hundred and fifty-six men, and in return lost over a hundred of their own men, including the two captains who were wounded and captured with the guns. Footnote. The optimistic Cooper thinks that two regular regiments would have given the Americans this battle, which is open to doubt. End of footnote. Ross took Washington and burned the public buildings, and the panic-struck Americans foolishly burned the Columbia 44 and Argus 18, which were nearly ready for service. Captain Gordon's attack on Fort Washington was conducted with great skill and success. Fort Washington was abandoned as soon as fired upon and the city of Alexandria surrendered upon most humiliating conditions. Captain Gordon was now joined by the ferry 18, Captain Baker, who brought him orders to return from Vice Admiral Cochrane, and the squadron began to work down the river, which was very difficult to navigate. Commodore Rogers, with some of the crew of the two forty-fours, Guerriere and Java, tried to bar their progress, but had not sufficient means. On September 1st, an attempt was made to destroy the devastation by fire ships, but it failed. On the 4th, the attempt was repeated by Commodore Rogers with a party of some 40 men, but they were driven off and attacked by the British boats under Captain Baker, who in turn was repulsed with the loss of his second lieutenant killed and some twenty-five men killed or wounded. The squadron also had to pass and silence a battery of light field pieces on the fifth, where they suffered enough to raise their total loss to seven killed and thirty-five wounded. Gordon's inland expedition was thus concluded most successfully, at a very trivial cost. It was a most venturesome feat, reflecting great honor on the captains and crews engaged in it. Baltimore was threatened actively by sea and land early in September. On the 13th an indecisive conflict took place between the British regulars and American militia, in which the former came off with the honor and the latter with the profit. The regulars held the field, losing 350 men, including General Ross. The militia retreated in fair order, with a loss of but 200. The water attack was also unsuccessful. At 5 a.m. on the 13th, the bomb vessels Meteor, Etna, Terra, Volcano, and Devastation 
the rocket-ship Erebus, and the frigates Severn, Euryalus, Havana, and Hebrus opened on Fort McHenry, one of the other fortifications being occasionally fired at. A furious but harmless cannonade was kept up between the forts and ships until 7 a.m. on the 14th, when the British fleet and army retired. I have related these events out of their natural order, because they really had very little to do with our navy, and yet it is necessary to mention them in order to give an idea of the course of events. The British and American accounts of the various gunboat attacks differ widely, and it is very certain that the gunboats accomplished little or nothing of importance. On the other hand, their loss amounted to nothing for many of those that were sunk were afterward raised, and the total tonnage of those destroyed would not much exceed that of the British barges captured by them from time to time or destroyed by the land batteries. The purchased brig Rattlesnake 16 had been cruising in the Atlantic with a good deal of success, but in latitude 40 degrees north, longitude 33 degrees west, it was chased by a frigate from which Lieutenant Renshaw, the brig's commander, managed to escape only by throwing overboard all his guns except two long nines. And on June 22nd he was captured by the Leander 50, Captain Sir George Ralph Collier, KCB. The third of the new sloops to get to sea was the Wasp 22, Captain Johnston Blakely, which left Portsmouth on May 1st with a very fine crew of 173 men, almost exclusively New Englanders. There was said not to have been a single foreign seaman on board. It is at all events certain that during the whole war no vessel was ever better manned and commanded than this daring and resolute cruiser. The Wasp slipped unperceived through the blockading frigates and ran into the mouth of the English Channel, right in the thick of the English cruisers. Here she remained several weeks, burning and scuttling many ships. Finally, on June 28th at 4 a.m., in latitude 48 degrees 36 minutes north, longitude 11 degrees 15 minutes west, footnote, letter of Captain Blakely, July 8th, 1814, end of footnote. While in chase of two merchantmen, a sail was made on the weather beam. This was the British brig sloop Reindeer, 18, Captain William Manners, footnote, James, volume 6, page 429, end of footnote, with a crew of 118, as brave men as ever sailed, or fought on the narrow seas. Like the peacock British, the reindeer was only armed with twenty-four pounders, and Captain Manners must have known well that he was to do battle with a foe heavier than himself. But there was no more gallant seaman in the whole British navy, fertile as it was in men who cared but little for odds of size or strength. As the day broke, the reindeer made sail for the wasp, then lying in the west-southwest. The sky was overcast with clouds, and the smoothness of the sea was hardly disturbed by the light breeze that blew out of the northeast. 
Captain Blakely hauled up and stood for his antagonist, as the latter came slowly down, with the wind nearly aft, and so light was the weather, that the vessels kept almost on even keels. It was not till quarter-past one that the wasp's drum rolled out its loud challenge as it beat to quarters, and a few minutes afterward the ship put about and stood for the foe, thinking to weather him. But at one-fifty the brig also tacked and stood away, each of the cool and skilful captains being bent on keeping the weather-gauge. At half-past two the reindeer again tacked, and, taking in her staysails, stood for the wasp, who furled her royals, and, seeing that she would be weathered at two-fifty, put about in her turn and ran off, with the wind a little forward, the port beam, brailing up the mizzen, while the reindeer hoisted her flying jib to close, and gradually came up on the wasp's weather quarter at seventeen minutes past three when the vessels were not sixty yards apart the british opened the conflict firing the shifting twelve-pound carronade loaded with round and grape to this the americans could make no return and it was again loaded and fired with the utmost deliberation this was repeated five times and would have been a trying ordeal to a crew less perfectly disciplined than the wasps at three twenty six captain blakely finding his enemy did not get on his beam put his helm a lee and luffed up firing his guns from aft forward as they bore for ten minutes the ship and the brig lay abreast not twenty yards apart while the cannonade was terribly destructive the concussion of the explosions almost deadened what little way the vessels had on and the smoke hung over them like a pall the men worked at the guns with desperate energy but the odds in weight of metal three to two were too great against the reindeer where both sides played their part so manfully captain manners stood at his post as resolute as ever the wounded again and again a grape-shot passed through both his thighs bringing him to the deck but maimed and bleeding to death he sprung to his feet cheering on the seamen the vessels were now almost touching and put his helm aweather he ran the wasp aboard on her port footnote letter of captain blakely july eighth eighteen fourteen cooper starboard it is a point of little importance all accounts agree as to the relative positions of the craft end of footnote quarter while the boarders gathered forward to try it with the steel but the carolina captain had prepared for this with cool confidence the marines came aft close under the bulwarks crouched the boarders grasping in their hands the naked cutlasses while behind them were drawn up the pikemen as the vessels came grinding together the men hacked and thrust at one another through the open portholes while the black smoke curled up from between the hulls then through the smoke appeared the grim faces of the british sea-dogs and the fighting was bloody enough for the stubborn english stood well in the hard hand play but those who escaped the deadly fire of the topmen 
escaped only to be riddled through by the long Yankee pikes. So, avenged by their own hands, the foremost of the assailants died, and the others gave back. The attack was foiled, though the reindeer's marines kept answering well the American fire. Then the English captain, already mortally wounded, but with the indomitable courage that nothing but death could conquer, cheering and rallying his men, himself sprang sword in hand into the rigging to lead them on. And they followed him with a will. At that instant a ball from the wasp's main top crashed through his skull, and still clenching in his right hand the sword he had shown he would wear so worthily with his face to the foe, he fell back on his own deck dead, while above him yet floated the flag for which he had given his life. No Norse Viking, slain over shield, ever died better. As the British leader fell, and his men recoiled, Captain Blakely passed the word to board. With wild hurrahs, the boarders swarmed over the hammock nettings. There was a moment's furious struggle. The surviving British were slain or driven below, and the captain's clerk, the highest officer left, surrendered the brig at 3.44, just twenty-seven minutes after the reindeer had fired the first gun and just eighteen after the wasp had responded. Both ships had suffered severely in the short struggle, but as with the Shannon and Chesapeake, the injuries were much less severe aloft than in the hulls. All the spars were in their places. The wasp's hull had received six round and many grape. A twenty-four-pound shot had passed through the foremast, and of her crew of 173, eleven were killed or mortally wounded, and fifteen wounded severely or slightly. The reindeer was completely cut to pieces, in a line with her ports, her upper works, boats, and spare spars, being one entire wreck. Of her crew of 118 men, thirty-three were killed outright or died later, and thirty-four were wounded, nearly all severely. Comparative Force The Wasp, 509 tons, 315 pounds of broadside metal, 22 guns, 173 men, number of loss, 26. The Reindeer, 477 tons, 10 guns, 210 pounds of broadside metal, 118 crew, 67 loss. It is thus seen that the reindeer fought at a greater disadvantage than any other of the various British sloops that were captured in single action during the war, and yet she made a better fight than any of them, though the frolic and the frolic only was defended with the same desperate courage. A pretty sure proof that the heavy metal is not the only factor to be considered in accounting for the American victories. It is difficult to say which vessel behaved the best in this short but gallant combat. Footnote Cooper, Volume 2, page 287. End of footnote. I doubt if the war produced two better single-ship commanders than Captain Blakely and Captain Manners, and an equal meed of praise attaches to both crews. 
the British could rightly say that they yielded purely to heavy odds in men and metal, and the Americans that the difference in execution was fully proportioned to the difference in force. It is difficult to know which to admire most, the wary skill with which each captain maneuvered before the fight, the perfect training and discipline that their crews showed, the decision and promptitude with which Captain Manners tried to retrieve the day by boarding, and the desperate bravery with which the attempt was made, or the readiness with which Captain Blakely made his preparations, and the cool courage with which the assault was foiled. All people of the English stock, no matter on which side of the Atlantic they live, if they have any pride in the many feats of fierce prowess done by the men of their blood and race, should never forget this fight, although we cannot but feel grieved to find that such men, men of one race and one speech, brothers in blood as well as in bravery, should ever have had to turn their weapons against one another. The day after the conflict, the prize's foremast went by the board, and as she was much damaged by shot, Captain Blakely burned her put a portion of his wounded prisoners on board a neutral, and with the remainder proceeded to France, reaching Lorient on the 8th day of July. End of Part 13